Good morning. It is so good to be here with you all. I see so many familiar faces that it is wonderful to see again, at least from this perspective, to be able to preach to you. I also see a lot of new faces, and that's super encouraging. So if you're visiting with us, my name's John Joseph. I have the pleasure of serving here as the lead pastor, and uh, I'm grateful to meet you from afar. I would love if you would come say hi to me after the service just to introduce yourself. I'd love to say hello, get to know you a little bit. Uh, I want to thank you all for being here. If you've been attending CBC for the past couple months and you haven't seen me, as Jonathan said earlier, uh, the church very graciously and generously uh, gave me a sabbatical uh, as a time to rest from the work of ministry. Some churches give sabbaticals for the opportunity for their pastor to, to like write some book or something like that. That's just not on my radar whatsoever. Uh, it was a time for me to rest, to spend time, concentrated time with the family, uh, to enjoy them, uh, and yeah, to rest from the ministry. Uh, and it was a success. I'm sure many of the ladies talked to Leah at the women's retreat, uh, but I am feeling energized, refreshed, ready to go again, and I am uh, very excited about that. We spent July mostly around the area as our kids were doing swim team and things like that, so we were just hanging out. Uh, we visited Leah's brother and uh, uh, our sister-in-law, and then visited my parents again on the way back. It was just really great to get that time to pour out to them as well, uh, because we get to see them. Uh, we don't get to see them that often. So I want to thank you all for the gift of that sabbatical, and uh, am really encouraged at your generosity, and want you to know that I am feeling refreshed and ready to go again. Uh, so I thank you for that, and since it's time, I was also really encouraged to hear the reports about how church was going and how well taken care of uh, the church was, uh, not only with Jonathan preaching, Luke preached, and then we had a number of guest preachers as well. Jonathan Stockland, you preached also in that time, so the elders taking good care of the church, and then guest preachers coming in. I was just sad I wasn't here for Brian Davis and guys like that. I was jealous of you guys, but I got to listen to him on podcasts. That was, that was great. Uh, but I am ready to get back to work, which means getting back to the book of Genesis. Everybody ready for that? Yeah, Genesis. Let's cheer it on. Let's open it up. I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 28. We're picking up where we left off in the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking today especially at verses 10 to 22. I think the passage, if you're using the Bible we provided, is on pages 22 and 23. So you can find it there. Also, if you don't own a Bible for yourself, we want to encourage you to take the Bible that we provided as a gift from us to you. There's nothing that we would want more than for you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself. I want to encourage you, as I always do, to open to the passage, really open to it so it's in front of you. I want you to follow along with me as I read it in a few minutes, and then I want you to not shut the Bible when I'm done because we're going to look at the passage often in our time, and I'll give you an opportunity to look and see, hey, is what he's saying true? Is this what the passage is teaching? And since it's been a while since we've been in Genesis, I just want to provide a brief recap of the main point of Genesis. Put simply, the main point of the book of Genesis is to trace the line of descendants through whom the Messiah, the Savior, would come. So if you think back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God cursed the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin, he said to the serpent, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is an offspring of the woman who's going to come at some point in the future who will crush the head of the serpent and be injured somehow in the process, yet he will prevail and rescue God's people from sin. God is promising to send a child, an offspring, to crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin. And from that point forward, Moses begins tracing that line of individuals through whom that child, that Savior, would come. In Genesis 4, we learn that he would come from Seth, and then after Seth, from Noah, and then after Noah, in Genesis 12, we learn that the promised Savior would come from Abraham, and then from Abraham's son, Isaac, and then in our last sermon, way back on May 29th, we learned that God had chosen Isaac's son, Jacob, to be the one through whom this promised seed would come. So if you think back to the beginning of Genesis, it's like a wide angle lens looking at humanity and trying to find this line of descendants, and through the process of Genesis, as the book has unfolded, the camera has zoomed in and zoomed in and zoomed in on one particular family and one particular man, and that man now is Jacob. And we read about that in the, the last time in Genesis 27 and into 28. And now in our passage today, we read of a powerful encounter that Jacob had with God. This encounter proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had chosen Jacob to be the one through whom the Savior would come. But more than that, it's an encounter that highlights for us one of the most staggering realities and glorious promises that God makes to all of his children. What is that reality? What is that promise? Well, let's turn to the text and find out. I want you to follow along as I read Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22. This is God's word. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. But taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you... And your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place! 
This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. If you're taking notes, the main lesson this passage is teaching us today is that God promises to be with us, personally with us, with each of us individually and all of us corporately together if we've trusted in him. And so we should respond with awe-filled worship. God promises to be with us. And so we should respond with awe-filled worship. And to show that, we're gonna consider this passage in three movements, three basic points. We're gonna walk through the text and I'm gonna explain it as I go. Then we're gonna consider how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and then we're gonna meditate on that one point that God promises to be with us and how that should produce all-filled worship in our lives. So let's go ahead and look to the text. Let's turn there again. Look down with me at verse 10. We read there that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. So in the previous passage, if you haven't read it, Jacob lied to his dad and cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance. Esau then started plotting to murder Jacob. So Jacob's mom tells him to flee for his life to Haran, which is where she is from. So Jacob is on the run. That's where we meet Jacob in this passage. Things are not going well for him. He's traveling from Beersheba in the south to Haran in the distant north. Southern Israel, all the way to southern Turkey, which we, we think is where Haran is or was. We just have to take a moment to observe how desperate his situation is, right? By all standards of the day, Jacob lived in luxury. His mother and his father were wealthy. God had abundantly blessed them with great wealth. And so we have to assume that he was never in need. But after the disastrous choices he made in the last chapter, he's now on the run for his life with apparently just the clothes on his back, right? He's forced to sleep out in the open on a rock, a rock for a pillow, right? Praise God for the growth in technology and our ability to produce materials like down feathers by which we can make pillows out of, right? I don't know about you. I've never slept on a rock, at least with my head on a rock, nor do I ever want to. This is a bad and rough situation, yet these tough circumstances become the context for a powerful encounter with God. In verse 12 and following, Jacob falls asleep and dreams. And in his dream, he sees a ladder set up on the earth. 
Now, kids, I have a ladder. It's actually a really big ladder. I bought it at Lowe's. It's one of those ladders that it folds up and you can use it like a normal ladder, but then you can lay it out and extend both sides of it so that it's really tall, tall enough to almost reach the roof of my house. I don't ever get up on it because I would fall off of it and kill myself, but it's a really big ladder. It's like 20 feet high. That is not what you should picture in your mind. This ladder that Jacob sees is a gigantic ladder. It is a ladder that is set up on the earth that reaches all the way to the top of heaven. This is a huge ladder, not a ladder that you look at like this, but one that you look at like this. It is a gigantic ladder. This is a staggering vision. On the ladder, he sees angels going up and down. Not only that, but look at verse 13. At the top of the ladder, standing over the ladder, he saw God himself. But the dream gets even better because he doesn't just see God, he hears God. Look at what God says to him in verses 13 to 15. He identifies himself. Jacob, I am the same God that your grandfather Abraham and your father Isaac worshipped. Just as I promised to give them the promised land of Canaan, I am going to give you the promised land of Canaan. Just as I promised them that they would have offspring like the dust of the earth, I'm going to give you offspring like the dust of the earth. Just as I promised them that all the nations will be blessed through their offspring, so I am promising you that all the nations will be blessed through your offspring. Jacob has very clearly inherited the promises God made to Abraham and to Isaac, the promised seed who would bring the blessing of salvation to the nations, who would crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin, would come from him. But the promises keep going and get better. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God will be with Jacob. As he flees for his life, God will be with him. As he ventures out into the unknown, because he has no idea what's going to happen in his life. We've read Genesis. He hasn't. But he has no idea what's going to happen in his life. God will be with him. As he faces trials, God will be with him. And even though he is fleeing the promised land that God promised to give him, God will bring him back to the promised land, and God will do all that he promised Jacob. And I want you to notice how Jacob responds in the rest of the passage. He responds with awe-filled worship. Look at verse 16. He awakes and exclaims, Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. How awesome is this place. 
This is none other than the house of God, and, and this is the gate of heaven. And then he takes the stone that he slept on. He sets it up as a pillar, as a monument to God. He renames the place Bethel, which means house of God. And then he makes a vow, a commitment. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go, if he will provide for me and bring me back to the promised land, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, some people read this like Jacob is placing conditions on God, like it's only because God is doing these things, and it's only if God actually does these things that Jacob will follow him, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Jacob's response is more like, if God is going to do that for me, if God is going to give me the chance to be part of his family, if God is promising me his personal presence, then he is my God. He is receiving and responding to God's promises to him. This is a display of faith in action. He is committing to following the Lord, and he responds with worship, with awe-filled wonder. He acknowledges God's presence and power. He sets up the pillar to mark the place where he met God, and he's so moved by God's grace to him that he commits to giving back a full tenth of all that he has to God. God promises to be with Jacob, and that produces awe-filled worship in Jacob. And in this account, we can see clearly how Jacob is a pattern for his future offspring, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel that would descend from Jacob. Think of what God's response to Moses' fear about confronting Pharaoh, how did God respond to him? Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said to Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you. Or think of what he later said to Joshua. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Not because you're strong, Joshua, but because just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. Or think of what he said to Gideon in response to Gideon's fear about leading Israel into battle. I will be with you. A simple phrase that should quell every fear that Gideon has. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God was with Israel, corporately and individually. God was with them. They were his people, and he was their God. He was with them in the wilderness, leading them by the pillar of cloud and fire. He was with them in the tabernacle and later the temple, the house of God where the glory of God dwelled among his people, the gate of heaven where heaven and earth met. But he wasn't just with Israel in the temple. He was with them in their homes. He was with them in their fields. He was with them on their journeys. He was with them in their victories and was with them in their defeats. He was with them in their joys and he was with them in their sorrows. Think of all the various passages in the Old Testament that we could point to to show that God is with his people. Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. 
Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 41. Do not fear, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jeremiah 1, do not be afraid of anyone, for I will be with you. Psalm 16, the Lord is at my right hand, therefore I shall not be shaken. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? 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 I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God was always with his people. And his presence with his people was to produce or result in awe-filled praise. Think of how Israel responded to God rescuing them out of Egypt by bringing so many free will offerings to Moses for the building of the tabernacle. And Moses had to say, yo, stop. You have brought enough. Like this is, I'm going to have to get an attic for all this and I'm going to have to store all this, right? We, we have way more than we need. Think of the nation erupting in praise when the ark of God, symbolizing the presence of God with his people, returned to Israel. Think of the Psalms calling for God's people to burst forth in jubilant song and dance, in clapping and in the playing of instruments because the Lord was with them. And yet, God's presence with Jacob and God's presence with Israel was like a drop of water compared to the ocean of God's presence with us. Because Jacob's vision of the ladder with God standing over it and later God's presence among the people of Israel in the temple symbolizing God's presence with his people, those were preparing us for the coming of the true presence of God. They were preparing us, pointing forward to the coming of the seed of the woman, the coming of the offspring of Abraham, the coming of the serpent-crushing, sinner-rescuing Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why when Isaiah predicted the birth of the Messiah, he said his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. This is why John would say in the first chapter of John that Jesus tabernacled among us. He was the living tabernacle and temple of God, the place where the glory of God fully dwelt among his people. This is why Jesus would call himself the gate in the gospel of John. He is the gate of heaven and the true house of God because it's only through Jesus that God and man can meet. Oh, to my non-Christian friend, I want you to sit with that for a second. You can know God. 
you can have a relationship with the living God. You can meet God. You can come to meet and know the God who created you by coming to know Jesus Christ. This world is not all that there is. I think we, a, a lot of Americans and a lot of people in Europe seem to, to live like this is all that there is. We're just living to eat, drink, and be merry in this life for, before we will die. But this world is not all that there is. Praise God for that, right? This world is not all that there is. There is a God, and the Bible tells us that his plans have always been to live with his people, to be with them. That's why he created the world in the first place. It was to be a place where he lived with his people and where they reflected his glory by living lives of all-filled worship of him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God and were cast out of his presence. And all humanity after them was born into the world, separated from God. But God wasn't done with humanity. He wasn't done with us. He set about his great work of redemption. He called Abraham and promised to make him into a great nation, and through him the nation of Israel was born. Like Adam and Eve, he brought Israel into the promised land and dwelled among them. And yet, like Adam and Eve before them, Israel sinned and was cast out of God's presence until the fullness of time came when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friends, you and I have sinned against God. And as a result, we are all under his judgment and he won't let our sins go unpunished because he is just and righteous. Yet he's also merciful. And he sent his son Jesus into the world to live the life that we should have lived, but none of us have, and to die the death that we deserved on the cross so that if we would turn from sin and worship him, we would be reconciled to God. We would become his children and be given the glorious promise of God's presence now in this life and the assurance that he is bringing us to live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth where we will dwell in his immediate presence forever, like we heard of from Revelation chapter four. But to be forgiven of your sins, to be reconciled to God, you must turn in faith to God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus that you can truly come to know God. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to Jacob's dream when talking to his disciples, and he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When Jesus describes Jacob dream, Jacob's dream, there is no ladder connecting heaven and earth because he is the ladder. He is the house of God. He is the gate of heaven. He is the only place on earth where God and man can meet. 
And if you turn to Jesus in faith, God will give to you his personal presence. He will be with you to protect you and to provide for you until he brings you to be home with himself. Now, now some of us might be thinking as we hear this, John, that's great, but you, you don't know me. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the guilt and shame I carry around because of them, and, and that's absolutely true. I don't. But you may be thinking you're not worthy to know God, and if that's what you're thinking, you need to know that none of us here are worthy. Nobody in this room is worthy. That's what makes the good news good news. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We have all offended his holiness by living lives as though we are God and not him. But Jesus came to save sinners, real, actual sinners who have guilt and shame and have done terrible things. And if you doubt that God would have anything to do with you, just look at Jacob. We can't forget the context of this passage and what he had just done. He lied in a massive way multiple times to his dad. And while he was lying, if you go back and read Genesis 27, he takes God's name in vain while he's doing it. His dad is like, uh, how did you come back so soon with this food? And he's like, because God gave me success. Like, no, no, God didn't give you success in that. You're, you're lying to your dad. He cheated his brother terribly, right? And he cheated his brother so badly that his brother was planning to murder him. His mom had to tell him to flee for his life. And here he is, fleeing for his life. He's lost everything. He's sleeping on a rock, and God comes to him. God comes to him. But he doesn't come in judgment. He comes in mercy and in grace, and he gives glorious and undeserved blessings to him. And that is what God does for us in the gospel. He came to us in our sin. He revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus. He gave us new hearts to behold his glory, and he promises us forgiveness and cleansing and justification, sanctification, adoption, protection from the evil one, provision for all that we need, the future hope of eternal life with him in the new heavens and the, and the new earth. And on top of that, he promises to be personally, personally with us through everything we face in this life. What did Jesus say to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel? Behold, I am with you sometimes. Behold, I will be with you at 11 a.m. on Thursday of this week. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And from that moment until now, the promise of God's personal presence with his people has girded strengthened and upheld the church as a whole and individual believers in every century and through every conceivable circumstance because we know that there is nothing the Lord can't handle. I want you to raise, raise your hand if you know who Bear Grylls is. Raise your hand if you know who Bear Grylls is. I'm not sure everyone will know who he is. For those who don't know, Bear Grylls is a former Special Forces soldier turned into survival expert. There's basically nothing Bear Grylls can't do, like legit. It's crazy what he does. So he's got a show called Running Wild where he takes a celebrity to some extreme survival situation and then guides them from their drop-off point to the extraction point. And through the course of the show, they travel through all sorts of extreme conditions. They face all sorts of dangers, 
and he teaches them all sorts of survival skills. My kids and I watched an episode recently where he took Natalie Portman, Natalie Portman to the Panamanian jungle. Who would have thought? Natalie Portman in the Panamanian jungle. They were dropped from a helicopter into the ocean. They had to swim ashore. Then they had to traverse miles through the Panamanian jungle with massive snakes, massive swamps, and alligators in their way before they had to scale the face of a cliff to make it to their extraction point. And do you know what we can say with absolute confidence? Natalie Portman had zero chance of doing any of those things on her own. Natalie Portman, she get dropped into the ocean. Maybe she can swim, but like falling 50 feet out of a helicopter probably would have like knocked her unconscious and all of that. And she's there, she's trying to figure out what to do. Natalie Portman had no chance. Nope, no offense to her. She would have said the same thing on the show. It's only because Bear Grylls, survival expert extraordinaire, is there to lead her and guide her through every particular circumstance. Friends, like Natalie, you and I would have no hope of traversing the toils, the trials, and the snares of this life were it not for the fact that the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Friends, the Lord is personally with you today if you have trusted in Jesus. And he has promised to personally protect and preserve you until he has completed the good work he began in you, right? In the midst of sickness, he is with you. In the midst of chronic pain, he is with you. In the midst of disease, he is with you. In the midst of a difficult marriage, he is with you. In the midst of loneliness, loss, unemployment, anxiety, despair, depression, struggles with sin, and even through death itself, he is with you. And his presence with us fundamentally changes how we should experience the trials of living in a fallen world. Uh, For the kids here, some of you may be able to relate to this. I grew up in a military family so we moved around a lot, and I attended a lot of different schools. And one of the most experiences I had when attending new schools was going to the cafeteria for lunch. I would walk in, I would look around, and since I didn't know anyone there and I didn't have any friends to sit with, I would just stand there awkwardly, panicking, trying to figure out which table I'm actually going to sit down at and which people actually aren't going to talk to me, right? Like, you just have that terrible experience. I dreaded going to the cafeteria. That, though, was only until I made some friends. Then my whole experience of the cafeteria changed, right? I no longer walked in alone. Uh, I walked in with my group of friends, and their presence with me enabled me to navigate what was once a difficult situation with confidence. I want you to think about the confidence you can have to face your trials, knowing that if you've trusted in Jesus, God is with you. Those aren't just words. That is a reality. God is with you. 
Right? You can have the same confidence that David had in Psalm 23. When he, when, he, when he says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. What difficult thing are you facing today? What, what are you worried about? What do you see on the horizon in your life that you're just troubled by? Maybe it's even the unknown. Remember who's walking with you in the midst of that. And it's not as though he's just there walking with us but doesn't do anything in the midst of it. He protects, he provides, he directs. He allows only the difficult things that he knows will ultimately be good for us. And we will, he will use all of those to bring us home to glory. For the kids especially, I want you to know, if you trusted in Jesus, God is with you. He will protect you. He will be with you in everything until he completes everything that he promised to you. But he's not just with us individually. He's also with us when we gather as a church. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. God is with us right now in this place. Right, right. We, we, we should say with Jacob, truly God is in this place. And the fact that God intervened in our lives and saved us and re- revealed himself to us and gave to us his powerful presence, that should move us to awe-filled worship. Friends, let me remind you, as I need to be reminded each week, God is with us in this place. God is here in this place right now. If Jacob was moved to all-filled worship after recognizing God's presence at Bethel, how much more should we be moved to all-filled worship recognizing his presence with us in Christ? Right, consider, I'm sometimes helped by this, so I'm just gonna do this as an exercise for you. Maybe you'll be helped by it, maybe not. I want you to consider who it is that's with us. Think of Jacob's vision. In our worship, we encounter the God who stands over heaven and earth. The one from whom all divine activity in the universe emanates, guiding and directing all of it. Angels going out, angels coming back to report to him. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. The God whose presence instills fear in those who encounter him. Look at verse 17. What does Jacob say? It says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and did not know it. And he was afraid. We're in the presence of the same God who when Isaiah saw him, he said, woe is me, for I am unworthy to be in his presence. We are in the presence of the God of glory whose voice shakes the wilderness. The one from whom heaven and earth itself flee. The one who rides on the clouds, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is surrounded by myriad angels crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're in the presence of the one who dwells in a high and holy place, yet who also draws near to the lowly in heart, who is near to all who call on him in truth. And that reality should produce in us all filled worship when we gather as a people all filled worship how are you preparing yourself on a weekly basis to meet with God when the church gathers on Sunday 
I want you to consider some of the different ways you could prepare yourself to meet God and encounter him on Sunday. You could read the passage that's gonna be preached on ahead of time, just thinking about what's gonna be preached. We post the upcoming sermons on our website. You could emulate the Dubois family who has moved on from us to Fayetteville, North Carolina. They would get the bulletin for Sunday ahead of time and sing the songs that we were gonna sing on Sunday on their way to church in order to encourage and get their hearts ready for worship, right? You could use your church, you could use your ride into church to pray for God, to make his presence known among his people, right? Listen, I get it, I get it. For many of us, life is hectic, we feel frazzled, we may be dragging when we come in each Sunday, and because of that, we don't need to, to, to move away from preparing our hearts, we need to move towards preparing our hearts for worship. We need to fight to get our own hearts ready for worship because what we need most after weeks like that is to encounter God, to meet with God in his word, in our prayers, in our songs, in the Lord's Supper, but it's not just on the way to church. When you're at church, in the service, how can you engage in worship in a manner that reflects the fact that you know you are meeting with the awesome and exalted God by his spirit through his son, right? During the moment of silence, right? You may have had a busy week. One of the reasons we provide like a very short moment of silence, like 30 seconds of silence, is so that you can ask God to meet with you, to refresh you and renew you. Like I said, that's all you gotta say. Father, would you meet with me, refresh me, and renew me today? I think I'm gonna say that next week. That might become my prayer each week, right? You don't have to use many words. But in that moment, how are you preparing yourself for worship, right? During the readings, do you normally check out or are you listening intently to the reading of the word as the living and active word of God that brings God's will to bear on your life? When we pray, are you tracking with as much as you can Tracking with and affirming what is being prayed by possibly responding loudly at the, at the end with the word amen to show that you agree with it. Hey, let's practice it real quick. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do it again. In Jesus' name, amen. do that at the end of each prayer. Let the person praying know, I agree with you. Maybe we should take the silence at the end of the prayers. It's like we're not, we're, maybe we're saying things that aren't, aren't right, but right? Think about our singing. In our singing, how are you? with the distinct emotional makeup that God has given you, seeking to imitate Jacob in his response to encountering God. Right? In our singing, how can you push the boundaries of how you express joy further outward? Right? How can you, little by little, sing louder and louder and with more vigor in response to meeting the lion and the lamb on Sunday? Listen, I could thank you Yes, let's keep it going. Listen, I can promise you this. In heaven, you will do things that you never would have thought you would have done on earth in the worship of God. You will fall on your face in front of God. You will clap your hands in front of God. You will scream in joy to God because God is with you presently. You're seeing him in his glory. How can we emulate now what's gonna happen in heaven because Christ is making himself known to us here each Sunday, right? We are not gonna sing in heaven like we sing here. And I, I get it, right? It's a, it's a fallen world. I don't expect that. But 
let's push our boundaries a little bit more outward, right? And think about how we can uh, express ourselves with appropriate awe to God, right? To the parents with kids in the home, right? You know how you'll, you'll hear people say that your habits with your phone will be copied by your children, right? They just watch what you do, and when they get a phone, they do the same things, right? Because children tend to copy their parents. I think the same holds true for worship. How, are you, how you prepare yourself for worship and how you engage in worship will be copied by your children. What are you teaching them about encountering God each Sunday? Most, if not all of the kids here are old enough to have to sit through a school day and engage with what they're learning at school. How can you encourage them to engage all the more here because of the fact that they get to meet with God? How are you encouraging them to engage in age-appropriate ways through the, rest of the, through, the, through the entire service? Listening to the readings, singing the songs, praying when we pray, and listening to the sermon, right? What an amazing privilege we have here, friends. God is with us. We get to meet with God. Truly, God is in this place. And yet his presence isn't limited to this place. He is with us each day, personally protecting and providing for all that we need, and that should cause us to give back to God all that we had. You see at the end of the passage how Jacob gives a tenth of all that he has to God. He presently has nothing. He's just giving him some oil and a rock. But soon we will find that God keeps his promises to Jacob, and he prospers abundantly, and Jacob gives generously back to God as an expression of his gratitude. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul applies this principle to the entirety of the Christian life. We should offer our whole lives as an expression of worship to God. Whether we're married or unmarried, whether we're husbands or wives, whether we're fathers or mothers, elderly or children, employees or unemployed, all that we do is to be done in service to Christ as an expression of our gratitude to him. And as we do those things in the course of the weeks, of our weeks, we have the promise that not only will God be with us, but that just as he promised Jacob, He will accomplish all that he has promised to us and he will bring us back into his presence in the promised land. For Jacob, that meant returning to Canaan. For us, we have the promise of the true Canaan, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. Jesus said to his disciples, I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that you may be where I am also. Friends, that promise stands for you today in Christ. Christ will come. He will come to gather his people. He will come to bring us to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth where God will be with us once and for all and we will respond in awe-filled worship forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we offer our hearts to you and we pray that you would stir up these affections in us and these acknowledgements that you are here with us. You are truly in this place and we praise you by the Spirit through your Son, Jesus. And we ask that you would remind us in the days to come that you are with us through every trial and snare and that you will keep every single one of your promises to us. So cause us to respond with awe-filled worship. And we pray this all in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.